Good afternoon, everyone. Today is Friday, February 26th, and you have just tuned in for another episode of The Prognosis, your one-stop shop for anything and everything prog rock here on WIUX B-Side Internet Radio. And let me tell you something, this program has been waiting in the wings for quite a while now. I've been doing this show, uh, this is my fourth semester doing it now, This is my first time back in the studio since last, uh, I guess it's been since November. Wow, now that I think of it, that is wild. It feels great to be back. Um, But this is my second semester doing this show on B-Side. And last semester, I had worked on this particular program. I had everything organized and ready to go. I had everything typed up the night before. I stayed up until like 3 a.m. and I was researching and I had everything really thoroughly done and ready to go. And then this was on December 4th. I walked over to the studio and the doors were locked because campus had closed down in anticipation for winter break. And not only am I a student at IU, but I actually work at the radio station. So there's really no excuse for me to not have known that the studio wasn't going to be open. But I was definitely bummed then and this program has been sitting on the back burner. The script has been all typed up. The playlist has been sitting snugly right next to it. They're on the back burner for about three months now. So it feels great to get back into it, and I'm excited to share today's show with you. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the website Discogs, probably a few of you, but in case you're not, it's an online marketplace for physical music for the most part, but it also acts as a crowdsourced database for music release history. Personally, nothing compares to shopping for music in person at a local record, record store, but when it comes to online shopping, Discogs is definitely my personal favorite. And beyond being a marketplace slash database for music, the website is also a host to a blog spot where some interesting articles pop up every now and then about music and music-related topics. A few months ago, before winter break, I was turned on to a column by author Jeffrey Lee Puckett, who writes about specific albums that are best listened to through headphones. In early October of this year, he published an entry to his column dedicated to Robert Fripp's 1979 album, Exposure. I first listened to this album maybe two years ago, probably coming up on three, and it's been a while since it has crossed my mind, but I'm so glad that this article reminded me of it because this really is a fantastic and dynamic album. There's so much stylistic variety among the tracks, and the personnel on here is absolutely bonkers. The musicians that contributed to this thing are an uncanny amalgamation of veteran prog rockers, A-list pop stars, and highly renowned producers and session musicians, the likes of which I have not seen together in any other context. I don't know if this has happened before or if I'm just oblivious to it. I'd be happy to know. But I'd love to list all these people off now, but I think it would be best if the lineup reveals itself as we progress deeper into the album. Another notable aspect to this album is that it is one of the earliest studio outputs to feature Frippertronics, which is the name Robert Fripp assigned to his unique method of creating improvised and ambient music, but I will talk more on that later. We have a monster of an album here, folks. As we get into it, I want to make clear that beyond my opinions, the information I am working with is coming primarily from the aforementioned article as well as the prog rock book that I usually go to in order to research my programs. If you've listened to my show before in semesters past, I've mentioned, I've mentioned it on here before. The name of that book is The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock by David Weigel. I believe it was published in 2017. This book and the article are both great reads, so feel free to look into them if anything on today's show excites you. So... Without further ado, let's dive into things and look at the context of Robert Fripp's career leading up to the release of this album. I haven't mentioned this yet, but just in case you're unfamiliar with Robert Fripp, he is one of, if not the most important figure in the history of prog rock. He founded one of the first ever prog bands, King Crimson, back in 1969 and has involved himself in countless projects over the past five or six decades. That's really the main reason why he was able to get so much impressive personnel on this album. 
because he'd made so many connections in the industry up to this point in the late 70s. I probably have mentioned his name at least once in every show I've done here on the air going back to first semester of freshman year. So this Fripp guy that I'm talking about is a really, really important dude. He had been with King Crimson since the band's forming in the late 60s, but by the mid-70s he hit a turning point. In 1974, after numerous lineup changes where Fripp remained the one consistent member of the band, King Crimson released the album Red, which is a fantastic album, but this would be King Crimson's last output for several years to come as the band went on hiatus. In an interview with Melody Maker, when asked about the reasons for the band split, Fripp said that he could provide three reasons, and these are direct quotes. The first is that it represents a change in the world. Second, he said, where I once considered being a part of a band like Crimson to be the best liberal education a young man could receive, I now know that it isn't so. And third, the energies involved in the particular lifestyle of the band and in music are no longer of value to the way I live. If you couldn't guess, it's pretty apparent that Fripp was going through a major personal crisis during this time. The attitude that you see here isn't just a one-off thing either. By this point, Fripp had gone completely apocalyptical in his worldview. There are other interviews from around this time where Fripp talks about society being in decline. At one point, he stated that he believes that this societal transition will reach its most marked point in the time from 1990 to 1999, where he believed that without intervention of some greatly enlightened people, we could see a complete collapse of civilization comparable to that of the Minoans and a period of destruction lasting up to 300 years. I don't know where he got that figure from, but we're just going to take his word for it, I suppose. But beyond this concerning philosophy that Fripp had developed, there were also more musical reasons for Fripp and ending King Crimson. He had spoken in years past of Crimson being a mega-touring dinosaur that was unfit to survive in an individualist future. He saw the best route as a musician to be that of a small, self-sufficient mobile unit. And, lucky enough for him, Fripp had already really had that going for him on the side. Since the year before, Fripp had been collaborating with a fledgling young Brian Eno, creating experimental ambient music. Even though Fripp knew the type of music they were making would never reach the masses like Crimson did, he found this project to be much more personally and spiritually fulfilling. The duo had already released an album in 1973, and they would release two more by the end of 1975. It was at this point that Fripp decided to take a much bigger and more drastic break. Around this time, Fripp was turned on to the teachings of George Gurdjieff, an Armenian spiritual teacher who died in 1949. Gurdjieff taught that most humans do not possess a unified consciousness and thus live their lives in a state of hypnotic waking sleep, but that is, it is possible to awaken to a higher state of consciousness and achieve full human potential. Before he died, Gurdjieff told one of his English disciples, J.G. Bennett, to found a school to disseminate his philosophy. Bennett finally did so in 1971, and then died three years later. Thus, Robert Fripp was among the first group of people to enroll in this institution, where he would be a resident student for 10 months. He shared a group, or excuse me, he shared a room with four other men and would wake up every day at 6 a.m., The day would proceed with psychological exercises, followed by breakfast, and then to practical training, like the metal workshop where Fripp became a pupil. Fripp would later express how difficult it was to face his negative feelings when he was devoid of other outlets like watching TV or getting drunk or whatever else, which is generally what happens when you isolate yourself like that. He also had a committed girlfriend leave him during this time at the institution, so this was just not a great time for poor old Fripp. Fripp would emerge almost a year later. He was still disillusioned with the music industry, but desired to continue making musical pursuits. And he really made up for the lost time because he got involved with a lot of stuff. Fripp was quick to join the ranks of Peter Gabriel, who wanted him to work on his first solo album after his departure from Genesis. 
Fripp accepted and joined Gabriel in the studio. It is here that Fripp met Tony Levin, who was recording bass for Gabriel, and is also, by coincidence, one of the best bassists who has ever lived. Levin would go on to have a career equally as diverse as Fripp's, and would also be a part of the reformation of King Crimson in 1981, but that is another topic for another show. Fripp would play on Gabriel's first two solo records. Eventually, Fripp got a call from his old friend Brian Eno. Eno was working with David Bowie, who was in the middle of recording his legendary Berlin sessions. Bowie wanted to try a new guitarist, and Fripp stepped up to the plate, and just like that, got a vital spot with Bowie on his album Heroes. I'm going to take a break now to listen to some tracks from these albums. The song that you all are probably most familiar with from these selections is the title track from David Bowie's Heroes. I'm going to opt to play one of the more obscure tracks from that album, but it's definitely worth your time to take a closer listen to that title track next time you hear it on the radio or on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever you use. Fripp is definitely the type of musician who likes to remain more in the background rather than take up center stage, which is why he was able to remain a relative unknown while still accomplishing so much throughout his life. His style of playing doesn't always grab everyone's attention from the beginning, but once you listen to enough of his stuff, you start to notice his presence in other artists' music that you weren't aware of before. I think Heroes is probably the best example of that, where we have this song that we have all listened to, maybe even hundreds of times, but then you listen a little more actively, and you get to this droning background guitar solo toward the end of the song, and this light turns on over your head, and you realize, wow, that is 100% Fripp through and through. But that is something for you to do on your own time. For this hour, we will be listening to The Secret Life of Arabia, where Fripp plays lead guitar. And before that, we're going to go a little more mainstream with our selection from Peter Gabriel's first solo album and play Salisbury Hill, where Fripp plays electric guitar, classical guitar, and banjo. Keep in silence, I resigned 
Welcome back. That was The Secret Life of Arabia by David Bowie. And before that, we listened to Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel. Both of those songs featured Robert Fripp on various forms of guitar. If you're just tuning in, welcome. You are listening to The Prognosis, and we are doing a deep dive into Robert Fripp's debut solo album, Exposure, from 1979. But right now, we're doing a little bit of historical context, looking at the career of Robert Fripp leading up to that. Right now, we're in the mid-70s, and it's really pretty amazing how Fripp was able to be a part of so many legendary projects in such a short period of time and still flew completely under the mainstream radar. He was involved in so much stuff, it's really difficult for me to decide what things aren't worth mentioning for today's show, and I've already mentioned so much. Two other notable acts that I will mention, though, are The Roches and Daryl Hall. The Roches were a rock group of three sisters whom Fripp recorded with and produced the first album for. Daryl Hall is a more recognizable name, being the second half to the hugely popular pop duo Hall & Oates. Fripp would produce Hall's debut solo album in 1977. These names will come back later, so keep that in the back of your mind. It was in 1978 that Fripp would go across the US and Europe playing live music for the first time since the collapse of King Crimson. No music had been published under his name since that time, and despite all of his major accomplishments with the aforementioned acts, he was not seen by the public eye. He re-entered the scene with his first show since 1974 at an art space called The Kitchen in Soho, New York on February 5th, 1978. We just had the anniversary of that not that long ago. This is where Fripp would debut his innovative new method of Frippertronics, as he called it. Fripp said at the time that this particular performance was conceived as a salon piece, which he described as improvisations intimately and informally presented and reserved the rights to be boring and unintelligent. It is difficult to describe exactly what Frippertronics is, so I will defer to an outline written by reporter John Piccarella, who was in attendance at the the show in Soho. His description goes as follows. The music is organized around drones, and Fripp let us in on the process by which these backgrounds are created. A guitar note is picked with the volume off, and then swells into the foreground as the sound level is turned up. There it is augmented by another another note, until a layer of tories and trills is built into a repeating loop of tape. The guitar is then switched out of the tape loop and Fripp solos, accompanied by the receding wash of recorded sound. So essentially, Frippertronics requires a solo guitarist to jerry-rig a reel-to-reel tape machine in a manner so that the tape feeds back into itself in a constant loop. The guitarist then records his notes onto the tape in real time until he reaches a point where he wants to stop. At this point, he plugs out of the tape machine and into an amp and solos on top of the rotating tape loop as the tape gradually degrades and fades back into silence. It's a very innovative concept, and one that would be a central point to nearly everything Fripp would produce for the rest of his career, particularly King Crimson in the 80s when he reformed the band in 1981. It is after this run of shows that Fripp made the acquaintance of the Roches, as I mentioned previously, and produced their debut album. This acted as the final segue into the recording sessions for his debut solo album, Exposure. Thanks to the friends he made along the way in his career, Robert Fripp's exposure has an absolutely stacked lineup. Fripp was the main creative force and provided guitars and production. Brian Eno lent his talents on synthesizer. Tony Levin is on bass. Phil Collins is on drums. And there are vocal contributions from Peter Gabriel, Daryl Hall, Tara Roche, and Peter Hamill. Now, Peter Hamill holds a very special place in my heart. If you're a fan of the show, I've talked about him before. He's a very divisive figure, even within the realm of prog rock. He has a very unique vocal style that tends to turn some people off. I believe I have been on record before describing his voice as anxiety personified, which to me has some cathartic elements, and I'm sure it does for other people as well. But we'll talk a little more on him later as well. Let's take a look at my personal highlights from the album in the meantime. 
The opening track is a short overture appropriately named Preface. This track essentially acts as a middle finger to the mainstream music industry and big record labels. Do you remember when I mentioned that Robert Fripp produced Daryl Hall's solo debut album? That album was completed in 1977, but actually didn't get released until much later once Hall had achieved fame with Hall & Oates, because at the time, the label believed the finished product, quote, was not commercial enough. So, in response to this, the album opens up with a male voice, which I am pretty sure is Brian Eno, asking, can I play you some of the new things I've been doing, which I think could be commercial? This then transitions into a choir of dissonant vocals inharmoniously multi-tracked over one another, over a wave of Frippertronics, and then that ends, and then the voice comes back and just says, no, no, never mind, I won't start like that, let's, let, let's try that over. This then feeds into the first main track of the song. The song is called You Burn Me Up, I'm a Cigarette, with vocals from Daryl Hall. The song has a general 1950s rockabilly sort of theme, but very jagged with a distinct punk rock energy. In the article that I mentioned at the beginning of this show, the author describes the sound as Chuck Berry meets the Ramones, and I don't think there's really any better way of putting that. After this song, the album transitions into the instrumental song Breathless, which to me is really a heavy metal track before its time. The guitar is aggressive and dirty, and there are little flourishes of Frippertronics that apparently break up through the surface. The track transitions from here into Disengage, where we hear our first from Peter Hamill. As I said, Hamill really is one of my favorite vocalists, but I recognize why he may not be for everyone. He has an extremely distinctive voice that is almost chameleonic in its range. He is well known in the prog community for his sharp and shrieking vocal attacks. But I think this song presents a vocal more unhinged than anything he ever did with his group Vandergraaff Generator or any of his solo work, which is really saying something. The lyrics on the track are pretty difficult to decipher, like most of the lyrics on the other tracks, but I interpret them as coming from a fictional child who is a little unstable, you know, maybe a little mentally ill, who is having a breakdown outside of a principal or a teacher's office while they speak to his family. And in that context, I feel that Hamill's, his voice and the the anxiety and panic that emanates from his, his vocal stylings just captures that, that feeling so well in a way that no other vocalist could do. It's really hard to imagine that this track was originally supposed to go to Daryl Hall. There's a demo recording available on Spotify and probably YouTube and other sources as well of this song with the original Daryl Hall vocals that was fully produced, just didn't make it on the final album. Hall actually performs quite well. It's nothing that you would expect to come from the same person who sang Rich Girl and Man Eater, but I'm certainly glad that the song ultimately went to Hamill. (sighs) That's a whole lot of information, folks, so I think it's finally time to hear some music from this album. Let's take this from the top with preface. Uh, Can I play you um, some of the new things I've been doing, which I think could be commercial? start like that sorry and again three four
welcome back. Disengage with Peter Hamill on vocals. You know, every time I listen to that song, I always think about what the recording process was like, and I think about putting myself in Hamill's shoes and what it would actually be like to go behind the microphone and do that in front of other people. I couldn't do it. I'd be red in the face after three seconds. But certainly impressive for me. So that was Disengage. If you're just tuning in, this is The Prognosis. We're doing a deep dive into Robert Fripp's 1979 debut solo album, Exposure. Before that, we had three other songs. Preface, You Burn Me Up, I'm a Cigarette, and the instrumental Breathless. Those are the highlights of side one of the album, according to me. And side one is my personal favorite. Going back to the article that we've been talking about, the author actually claims that side two is by far his favorite and the one that inspired him to write the article in the first place. It's important to note that the article was written specifically to explain why you should listen to this album with headphones, which makes sense because side two is where the Frippertronics really take the spotlight and the album shifts into a more ambient, uh, atmospheric realm. As great as those tracks are with headphones when you're in a dark room and by yourself, they don't necessarily make the best airplay for radio. So I will still showcase what is, in my opinion, the best that that area has to offer, but I will not take the time to delve into it all. So I highly encourage you to check out this album on your own it's in its entirety to get the full experience. I'm going to start out this second set with one more song from side one, Chicago, with more vocals from Peter Hamill. I might be biased with my love for Hamill, but I want to include this song to showcase the man's range and vocal variety. The song has a much more dark and direct tone than the last track I played. You may remember that one comment I made on how Hamill's voice could be described as chameleonic, and that trait really shows on this track. Then, that will take us to side two. The lead-in track, Exposure, also the title track, is a mostly instrumental showcase of Frippertronics, with Ter Roche coming in at the end, repeatedly screeching the titular word in a style that kind of reminds me of Claire Torrey's performance on Pink Floyd's Great Gig in the Sky, if you remember all the screaming and wailing that made that song as great as it is. After a couple more tracks, it brings us to the final 10 minutes of exposure. This is where it really benefits the listener to put on some headphones. The finale starts with Water Music 1. The track begins with the ambient sounds of Frippertronics while a lecture from J.G. Bennett plays. If you recall, J.G. Bennett is the man who founded the George Gurdjieff School back in the 70s that Robert Fripp attended during his mental breakdown. His voice is featured on several tracks across this album, but this time he is heard theorizing in a 1960s lecture about a second ice age and predicting immense climate change that will lead to coastal cities being wiped out by floods. With this album coming out in 1979, Fripp was really ahead of the curve when it came to climate change. The song segues into Here Comes the Flood, a somber piece where Peter Gabriel bemoans the oncoming fall of humanity. Jeffrey Lee Puckett describes the song as sounding as if Gabriel has been abandoned by his parents on your frontal lobe. The song then fades into Water Music 2, exploring the same musical style as Water Music 1, but without any, any human voices, and I'll leave it to you to figure out the implications of that. The album ends on a soft note with Postscript, where Fripp makes one final spoken statement to the listener. It might not be accurate to call it a grand finale, but it is certainly a moving one. So let's start out that final track from side one before we move to side two. So here is Chicago. Charm her with my 
minor mysteries I collide with the softness With the whispers and pleas Echoes of her movements Delicate obscenities It is impossible to achieve the aim without suffering. It is impossible to achieve the aim without suffering.
scientific point of view, it is now very likely that there will be again another ice age quite soon in the world, that we shall have the north part of the world all frozen like it used to be, then we're beginning to have natural disasters. From a scientist study, it seems likely that we shall soon begin to have these great changes in the Earth's climate, and the oceans will rise, and many cities will be flooded like London and Calcutta and so on. These things, they say, will happen according to scientific theories in about 40 years at the most, but maybe even quicker. Signals grow on radios All the strange things They come and go As early warnings Stranded starfish Have no place to hide Still waiting for The swollen Easter tide There's no point in direction We cannot even choose a side I took the old track The hollow shoulder across the waters On the tall cliffs They were getting older Sons and daughters Jaded underworld was riding high Waves of steel hurl metal at the sky And as the nails sunk in the cloud The rain was warm and soaked in the crowd Goodbye to 
silent in an easter line It'll be those who gave their island to survive Drink up Dreamers You're running dry So the whole story is completely untrue. A big hoax. <laughs> A big hoax. <laughs> A big hoax. <laughs> A big hoax. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. 
Well, there you heard it. My personal highlights, as well as the history behind Robert Fripp's standout 1979 album, Exposure. I hope you got something out of this program. I think this is an album that needs to be talked about by more people more often. I wasn't completely enraptured by it the first time I heard it, maybe not even by the second, but it has really shown itself to be an important piece of music and music history. So thank you for tuning in. I will be here in the studio every Friday at 3 p.m. Uh, like I said, this is the the fourth season of my show, The Prognosis, here on 99.1. It feels great to be in the studio again. I've been out for almost four months now. It's been a wild ride, but it feels good to be getting back in the swing of things. So I'm going to leave you with a track from Daryl Hall's Robert Fripp-produced album, Sacred Songs. Like I said before, it took a few years for this album to see the light of day since the record label RCA did not see any commercial value in the album. And I can see why. A lot of the songs on here sound like they easily could have been put on exposure. The track I'm going to play for you is NYCNY, recorded in 1977 and released in 1980. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, and as always, prog on.